Well, hey guys, um, we are continuing in our study in the book of Titus now. And so if you will, turn in your Bible to Titus chapter 1. And we're going to be looking at uh, verses, uh, really verses 5 through 7. You, today you, you heard the scriptures read 5 through 9. But as I was doing the, the prep for this, I, I came to that point in my sermon prep. I asked my beautiful wife, I said, I, I just don't know if this is going to go too long. And Diana's response always is, well, you need to cut it then. You need to cut something in half. And every time she's told me, she's always been right. So today is part one of the verses that you heard. And so here we are today, though. We're going to be looking at Titus chapter 1. We're going to look specifically at verses 5 and 6 as they are in this unit of, chapter, of verses 5 through 9. But I, as we, we left off this passage, uh, you know, the, the idea that we, we want to ask ourselves before we get into this is, you know, as Paul says, I, you know, I, I put you here in Crete, I've got you here. Uh, we have to ask the question of like, what are some important building blocks? What are some important business that you might think the church needs to attend to in order to thrive? And actually what we're going to find right here is leadership is godly leadership is needed in a church if it's going to make it. How, how often have you ever thought that leaders are important, at least to the church? I don't know if sometimes we ever think beyond maybe this on a Sunday, right? As long as, I think most of the time, I, you know, if you're, if you're like me, I think maybe it's easy to think, well, yeah, we, we make sure we get the right guy who can come and he can put on a good show, right? And just make sure these, but do we think about what, what is needed for the everyday life of the church, for the, the care of our membership, for the decisions that need to be made. And that's where Paul's going to come in today and say the blueprint really going forward for what a church needs, especially in this church here, is we need to start with some basic building blocks of godly leadership. So if you're going to look and say, okay, if we're going to look for people like this, what area would you begin to look at first? Well, it'll surprise you, I think, and it was to me kind of a shocker, but what we'll see here is it's probably going to start in an area that many of us maybe don't look at right at the beginning. So here we are. Let me open up with prayer, and then we'll just start in, and we'll begin to look at these verses together. Lord God, I thank you for the text of Scripture. Lord, I thank you that uh, you have given us your word, that it is true always, that it's timeless. It's for every generation, every church is to have read these things and study these things and seek what it is that you want for us today. Pray that you would be with us as we gather in here, as we hear your words. I pray that you would be with us, God. Be with those children who are next door, learning right now in the preschool area. God, we pray that we give you all the glory. We ask these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. So here we are, and let's look right now at five and he says this, the reason that I left you in Crete was to set right what was, left un, uh, what was left undone and as I directed you to appoint elders in every town. So just a little reminder, here we are. Let's look at the map if you want to think about Greece here, right? So here is Greece, here's everybody thinks of Athens, but this is where we're looking right down here. This is the island of Crete and it appears... That when Paul says, notice he goes and he says, the reason I left you there 
meaning at some point Paul was on a journey and he came to Crete. We're not sure how long he was there, but it seems like the church had gotten started. We do know that from history that there was a, a significant Jewish population. So he came to the people there and probably started and there was an early church movement. But he says, the reason I left you there was to set right what was left undone. So Paul had to leave and he, he didn't have enough time to kind of keep things moving. He didn't have enough time to get the church on track before he left. And so what are those things he said? He said, there's some things that were left undone. He says, as I, previous, as I directed you, meaning that at some point he had told Titus, hey, listen, here are some things that you need to do. I really, I'm leaving you here because I need you to be my rep to make sure the church gets this. And he says, as I directed you, meaning I've told you, but now he's writing it out, which now he's writing it a letter, which means Titus has not only remembered that Paul has told him to do this in the first place, now he's got a letter that he's going to stand up before the congregation and read it to them, and now there's a lot more force that comes with this. It's not just Paul told me, but now Paul told me, and everybody, listen, I'm just reading what he said. And he says, the reason I left you there, uh, he says, I, I, I directed you to appoint elders in every town. So the first thing is, you'll see, he says there's some stuff that's left undone and you'll see as you read through the rest of Titus and I hope that you will just continue every week to be reading through there's some stuff that is left undone but one of the things he said was left undone was this idea right of elders that he said I, I, I left you there and, and I need you to appoint elders in every town well, what does that mean? It's interesting if you look, first off, he says, I wanted you to appoint them. One of the things that's clear about that word and how it's used, it's not, uh, we need to have an election. We need to put up these guys and we need to make sure that we ordain. But actually the word is to put in charge elders of every town. Jesus uses the same word to put in charge or to appoint. He uses it in Matthew 24, 45. He says, who then is a faithful and wise servant? whom his master has put in charge of his household. So this is, these are people that he says, I'm, I left you there so that you would put people in charge of churches in every town. So these are guys who are going to be put in charge. Uh, but notice uh, what it says as well. It says, I'm going to put who in charge? Elders in every town. Something else for us to just be reminded of is notice elders are plural and, and uh, appointed elders in every town. It appears, and every time you kind of look through how this follows, there's always a plural elders and singular churches. And so it appears that there are churches in, in a few of these towns in Crete, and every town needs elders. Every church that's there needs plural elders. But who are these elders, right? You ever wondered, how do we get them? Why are they talked about? Where does this come from? Because it's assumed that they know. It's assumed that the people who are going to hear this are not going to be like, what are you talking about, man? We never even heard of an elder thing before. Well, what's that all about? Actually, it appears that there's, there's some Old Testament uh, pre precedents for this already. Here's an example. Look what Moses says in Deuteronomy. See, it appears that the elders were, were the word, by the way, can, can just mean old person, old man. But it also seems to have been taken on as a title. So not only were there people who are your elders, but there are, it's a title that has developed even from the Old Testament. Look at this, Deuteronomy 27, 1 through 4. Moses and the elders of Israel, meaning these are the guys who were the, the viewed leaders of Israel. They, they worked with Moses to do certain things. 
We forget sometimes we think it was just Moses and Aaron running the show, but no, there were Moses and then there were elders. There were guys who represented each of their, their tribes and their groups. So these guys, it says, they commanded the people together. Keep every command that I'm giving you today. And when you cross the Jordan into the land your Lord God is giving you, set up large stones and cover them with plaster. And write all the words of this law on the stones after you cross to enter the land of the Lord your God is giving you, a land flowing with milk and honey as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, has promised you. So it's clear that there's some sort of Old Testament precedence here. It seems also the synagogues had this kind of an, a concept as well, that somebody would have been called an elder who would run and, and, and help uh, manage things at the synagogue. So these people understood this. And so what Paul tells them is he tells them that the church is to have elders too. And, and, and so we have to look a little bit more into this and say, so then what is an elder for the church? We have, obviously, they represented tribes. Obviously, they helped with the synagogue. But what does it mean that there are elders here in a church? What is that supposed to look like? Well, as we read through this letter a little bit more, you're going to see that the title between elder changes. Sometimes it's called an elder. Sometimes it's called an elder. Sometimes it's called an overseer. Sometimes he's called a shepherd. Not in this letter, but I'll show you right now. All three of those mixed together. In fact, if you'll look, as Baptists, we just made a revision in our Baptist faith and message at the last uh, meeting. And you'll look, and if you look on the things talking about the office of the pastor, now we include all three of these titles because we're talking about the same person or people. Look at how Peter talks about and uses these words here. He says, I exhort the elders... Among you as a fellow elder. So Peter says, I'm also a fellow elder of yours and witness to the sufferings of Christ as one who shares in the glory about to be revealed. Now he says this, shepherd God's flock. You know what that word is? That's the word pastor. We never really, here's another thing. We use in the vernacular of today the word pastor, but really the title is not necessarily there. It's the, he's somebody who shepherds. That's what it means. He's the shepherd there. But the way the Bible uses him, notice how he says, there's the elders, and what do they do? They also are the shepherds, right? And then he says, shepherd God's flock among you as not overseeing, which is the word that we'll see. Actually, if you just read along, look at verse 7. Paul will call them in Titus, overseers. So we have elders and overseers, out of compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Not out of greed for money, but eagerly, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples for the flock. So all this to say, Paul is setting the stage, I need godly leadership. And he has said, you need elders. And what we mean by elders when we see how it's used in throughout the New Testament is elders, overseers, pastors are the same thing. Now I'll say this too, we have a plurality of elders here at the church. That's something that is, I think, closer to what that early church model was, where you had multiple elders, multiple men who were there who God put in place. Now, we're not going to be told exactly what they do in these first parts, but as we read through the rest of Titus, it's going to become clear what they were to do. But we do see some things already here. I will say this, if you've grown up in a church that only had a single pastor and you've ever had an associate pastor, you've already had a plurality of elders right there. You've already had multiple elders. And so this is not something foreign to, to the Bible. It's always been the case. And so here we are. He says, I, I left you there as I needed you to point elders. And so this is important for us to recognize. Right leadership is needed for the church to make it. 
Paul is saying the first thing they need is strong, godly leadership. As you're going to see, these are guys who have to be godly in order to lead this church. I remember being in churches before where I was the only guy. It was an island into myself. And I, and I so badly wanted the structure that would be have somebody else who I could lean on to help me lead the church. Because when it's just one guy making decisions, it's very, very difficult. The pressure is immense. There's no one to share the burden of how to make the decisions. There's nobody else to bounce ideas off of, say, where do we go from? Nobody else who's going to be at that level with you and then also be recognized as somebody who has that authority. When I remember one of the times, the clearest times where I felt how badly I needed a model closer to this was when it was COVID. It was like, okay. We have to shut down to stop the spread, right, for two weeks. And that's what we thought. But I was like, okay, well, who, who, how do I shut a church down? I've, I've never thought about this before. It's not anything I've ever really known. And I didn't know how to do it myself. And then I, so it was just calling people, like everybody. And it was just this system. There was no system in place to help me make a massive move like that. And then it was, how do we come back up? There was no system in place. I was just winging it. I, I did the best that I could with, the, with whatever structure that I had. And then the other problem is I've been in churches too where you've had, we make a decision with one team and then some people get nervous and then somebody complains and that team crumbles and then there's nobody to help move the ball forward. And so having a structure like this is essential. But there's a recognized structure that God has placed over the church and said, these are the guys to lead it, trust them and let them do it. And so Paul is saying, that's what, these guys, that's what this church needs. First and foremost are people who are recognized as the leaders of this to keep the church moving. Now he's going to tell us there's way more that's going on besides just we need somebody at the top, right? Or somebody to help move the ball forward. But it's godly leadership that is needed. Now, let me say this too. What we're about to find out is he says it's essential. They need elders in those towns. But recognize this. He's not just saying fill, whatever, fill it and put whoever in there. We just need leaders. It's easy sometimes to get desperate because you would think, man, if this church doesn't have any elders yet, they don't have any pastors yet. Man, we, somebody, we just got to throw somebody in there. I remember, you know, being a recruiter. And recruiting for the seminary. And the joke was always when, when times were low and you're realizing like, hey, man, we got to make we got to make sure we have our quota of students come in. The joke is always pulse and a pen, right? If they can if they got a pulse and they got a pen and they can fill that card out, we're sending that card back to the mothership and we're going to contact them and try to get them into school. <laughs> It was desperate times, right? You're, you're scraping the barrel, right? And times are better. You're like, you know what? Maybe you want to go to that school. We don't, this may not be the time for you. But when you're desperate, you're like, yes, yeah, send the card in. Let's do it. Let's just see what happens, right? And that's not what you're about to see. He's not going to say times are desperate. You guys need godly leadership. And so just take anybody. No, that's not what it is. He's not also going to see this too. He's, he's not going to say times are desperate and just take the guys who are known leaders in the community around you and just put them in. Yeah, I've been in churches as well where guys have thought that they should be running the show with me because they've been successful in their company or they've been successful in some sort of other business area before. And maybe God has given them some leadership ability, but those guys who, who wanted it, oftentimes when you look at the rest of the verses of this passage, you realize, uh-uh. They're no way near what God wants because God's not concerned with fill the role, just put somebody in the seat. God's not concerned. What he wants is the heart. He's concerned first and foremost are who are these guys and what is, what's their heart like before me before they step into that role? 
And so let's look now at what some of those qualifications are. If who's going to take this on, notice what it says. An elder must be blameless. Let me stop right here. He must be meaning he currently needs to be these things. He is not somebody who, as we read through the list, says, you know what, I'm not that right now, but I promise I'll get around to it. This needs to be somebody, the implication is they are currently living like this. They're currently, as they look amongst their congregation of who they're to appoint to, to lead them, they're going to look out and they're going to say, there are people who are already doing this already. Now, this is where it's important for you and I because it'd be easy for us to shut our brains off right now and say, okay, who cares because I don't want to be an elder. Let me stop here just for a second. As they're looking through the pool of people, the implication is there will be people, regardless of whether you even heard of elders before or even know what elders, that they should just be living like this, that this is going to be the general temperature of the church, that you should look and find people just doing this with their lives. It's important that what we're about to read below, and I love this, that, uh, of, of what a New Testament scholar has said about this. He says, nevertheless, this principle is pretty clear that the elder pastor overseer is above all to be a mature mature exemplifier of the kind of conduct and life demanded of all Christians. If you see in your hands, if you got a card today, if you're one of the lucky ones, right? On the back today, notice that there's some questions. And I want you to take that home this week and begin to study this passage a little more in depth and recognize, think about many of these qualifications that you'll see and see how they're not just exclusive of a pastor. In fact, all of these things that could be said relate in some way to what a normal Christian walk should look like. And so here he is. The first thing he says is he must be blameless. Now, what does that mean? It means faultless. It means ultimately he's got to be somebody that you can't bring a charge against. That There's nothing about him that you could say, you know, you might want to hold off on that because there's some weird stuff about him you need to know. Or there's some skeletons in the closet that we kind of know about. This is somebody that as you have tested them and looked at them, you come to that conclusion and say, I can't find anything on the surface really about them that would show that they're disqualified. So that's what it looks like, that the overarching kind of theme about what an elder should be is he should be somebody who you can't bring a charge against. It's not that he must be perfect, but it's somebody who is, as he's tested and examined, seems to kind of hold up to to these standards here. He's currently these things. Then it says this, he is the husband of one wife. Now, obviously, this is meaning he's not a polygamist, that you can't be a pastor and have multiple wives. But we also know in that culture today, back in those days, that polygamy really was kind of on the way out. It really wasn't a big thing. So it kind of means probably more than that. It seems that actually what it means is it talks more about fidelity. In fact, the more literal translation is he's a one-woman man. Means that he is, loves his wife, he is faithful to his wife. Now some have asked, could he be a single man? And I suppose he could be single. It's not mandating that every elder, pastor, overseer needs to be married. But I will say this, that, you know, that uh, if he has a wife, it will greatly enhance his ministry. Because God has given wives to us husbands to help us, man, our partners, to help us in all areas of our lives. To, to, we are partners as we take on the mission that God has given us. 
But another reason why he brings up this, because it's interesting, if you look at 1 Timothy 3, when he goes and tells Timothy what the requirements should be for overseers as he's setting up the church in Ephesus, he starts with this again. It must be about his relationship to his wife. His relationship with his wife must be first and foremost, that should be solid. He's got to have a solid wife and he better be solid and really connected and committed to his wife. Why? Well, I'll say this. I think one of the first ways that you see of why this is is because his marriage should be a picture to the rest of the church of the way that Christ loves the church. Look what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, 25 through 26. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. And so the way that this works out is as he is supposed to love his wife sacrificially the way Christ did, that's supposed to be seen and caught by the rest of the church. How he loves his wife and how he is faithful to her should be a picture and a model to everyone else in the church that this is what it should look like to have a, a godly marriage. But I think there's more to it as well. I think there's more to why he says he better be the husband of one wife, meaning he better be faithful to his one wife that he has. Because the relationship and the husbands, all husbands need to listen up now. The relationship that you have to your wife directly affects your relationship to God and the relationship that you have and how you lead your family. And if it's not right in the home, it ain't going to be right in the church. Listen to this. Look at what Peter says, 1 Peter 3, 7. Husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with a weaker partner. And that's just meaning that generally speaking, women are not as strong as their husbands physically. They're, they're, they, need more, they need the protecting of, of the husband. But notice what he says. You live in an understanding way. And he says, showing them the same honor as co-heirs of the grace of life, meaning you guys both are inheriting this salvation together. You're both on the same equal playing field before the Lord. But you better treat her white. Why? So that your prayers will not be hindered. Meaning that if the husband is not treating his wife well, if he's not faithful to his wife, if he's, if he's not mistreating, if he's, uh, he's not doing what he's supposed to do, God is not going to listen to the man. And if that's happening in his home, that's going to play out into the church as well. It's not that God's just going to be like, well, he's a terrible husband. But, you know, at church, I'm going to just bless him and listen to him and let him leave. No, it better be right in the home first and foremost before he ever tries to go out and lead. It's another one from the Old Testament, Malachi 2, 13 through 15. This was the Malachi condemning the priests. And notice what he says. This is another thing you do. You cover the Lord's altar with tears and weeping and groaning because he no longer respects your offering or receives them gladly from your hands. The priests have been doing offerings and sacrifices and they recognize God's not listening to us anymore. We keep doing all the right stuff, but he doesn't listen to us anymore. And then he says this. You ask why? Because even though the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, you have acted treacherously against her. And some of that could be unfaithfulness, but other that could be just the way that he mistreats his wife. She was your marriage partner and your wife by covenant. This is important to God. She's your partner. You are in covenant with her. Didn't God make them one and give them a portion of spirit? What is the one seeking godly offspring? He brought them together so that you might not only be partners, but also you might have a godly family together. He says, so watch yourself carefully so that no one acts treacherously against the wife of his youth. So the priests have been doing all the right things, but God said, I'm not listening anymore. We're done because I see what you do back home with your family. 
and it ain't right. So fix that. And so that's first and foremost, I think, why Paul is saying it better be right with an elder at his home. His relationship to his wife matters. He, he better treat her and have, have eyes only for her. It means he's not into pornography. He's not off with eyes wandering and looking at other people. He's got a heart and eyes for his wife, and he also treats her such a way that God blesses that relationship, and it'll then bless out as he leads in the church. But he goes on to say this. He must be husband of one wife, and he says, with faithful children who are not accused of wildness or rebellion. So as God has brought them together, he now says it's also important to look at his kids. Look at the relationship he has with his wife, but look at the relationship he has with his kids. It says they should be faithful kids, i.e. that they're faithful in the sense that they also are followers of Christ. Now, by the way, the Bible is filled with examples of people who could not conceive. This is not saying that if he's an elder, he must have children. But if he can't have children, they should at least promote the value of children and love children and, and want them. But here they are. They are people that says that, that, that he says, if they have children, you look at them because how you see what's happening in the home is an idea of how he's going to lead in the church. So this is what he says, they should be faithful children. These are ones that it's obvious that he has spent time in raising his children up with his wife to follow Jesus. He's not somebody who says, well, I'm, I'm just going to let them choose. Maybe you have people that you know like this. They're like, you know, we're just going to let our kids choose what they want to believe one day. And so we're not going to influence them. There is no place of that. And that's not just for elders. That's just the standard, right? Because he's a, by the way, remember, these are people already who should have been doing this. They're not saying, I'm in the running for elder, honey. We better open up the Bible and start discipling the kids now, right? Like this is, this is just like happening across the board. And they're saying from this pool of families that are discipling, you will see kids who come to know the Lord. And those are the ones, the ones that are following are the ones that will rise to the top. You're going to choose from this pool of discipling families. Discipling is, should be something that we just do. Deuteronomy 4 tells us, listen, Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These words that I'm giving you today are to be on your heart. And then it says this, repeat them to your children. Talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk along the road and when you lie down, when you get up. Bind them as a sign on your hand and let them be a symbol on your forehead. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your city gates. The Bible has always said that we need to be people who disciple our families. And it should be happening naturally, regardless of whether you're being examined or not. It's incumbent upon parents to do the job. If you think you're doing the job simply because you bring them here early for Sunday school, or you drop them off on Wednesday, and that's all that you do, you're not discipling them. It's only a small part of it. It's happening in the home. The influence of the parents should be seen. What else do they say? He's, they're faithful children who are not accused of wildness or rebellion. Now, this wildness, I've always read this because, I, you know, I have young kids, and they're wild, and they're... <laughs> and I thought, oh, no, right? But when you look at how this is, this isn't talking about, like, crazy, age, hyper, we just gave them a Mountain Dew, and they shouldn't have had a Mountain Dew, right? 
Uh, though there is some respect of like, if their kids are just unhinged or they're never controlled, there's something to that, right? But he says they shouldn't be accused of wildness. And the idea of wildness, you actually see how Peter uses this word in 1 Peter 4, 3 through 4. They are, says the time has already been enough time spent in doing what the Gentiles do, carrying on an unrestrained behavior, evil desires, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, lawless idolatry. And they're surprised that you don't, enjoy, you don't join them in the same flood of wild living that they slander you. So this is beyond, this is not just hyper. This is, they have rebelled, they are wild and into all sorts of crazy things, immorality, you name it. It says that also that they are, they can't be said that to be in rebellion. This is the idea that these are people who are not submitting to their parents, that they just undisciplined, always, uh, always rejecting the authority of their families. You can't have somebody who's like this lead the church. The big question is, are these adult children? Right? Could you have an, ad a, a, an elder who maybe has adult children who are like this? Is he disqualified? Is it just younger? Well, what's the answer? And, and the, the kind of where I've landed right now is if you read what Paul says and how he is, talks about children, the problem with the word child is it's the same word that we use, right? When I could say, here's my child, and your child could be 60 years old, or your child could be somebody who's in the, under the roof living under your house who's five, right? It, it can mean that they're just related to me, or it could mean that they're actually literally children. And so look at how Paul uses this in Ephesians 6. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, because this is right. Kids, if you're in here, you got one to deal with today. Obey your parents, right? Honor your father and mother. You should ask yourself, am I doing these things? I love this, because kids, listen up here. Notice what it says. Which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may have a long life in the land. You want a long life, kids? It's a promise. You obey your family? Do you obey your parents? You want a short life? Don't do it then. Just see what happens. But you should have a long life. Obey your family. And he says, fathers, don't stare up anger in your children, but bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. What I think is going on is these are obviously kids that are still under the roof of the elder. They've not gone on and made new decisions, but you can go and see that they're still under the authority of this family, and it's how the temperature is. What's the temperature of the home? What's the spiritual climate that exists in the home and everybody under the roof of this family? Well, why is it a big deal? Well, once again, it's what's happening in the home and how he leads his family is indicative of how he'll lead the church. Notice what, Timothy, what Paul says in 1 Timothy. He says this, If anyone does not know how to manage his own household... How will he take care of God's church? He must not be a new convert, so he might become conceited or incur the same condemnation as the devil. But this part right here, right? If anyone does not know how to manage his own household, there's a correlation, not only between how the husband and wife relationship should be, but also between how does the house look? How, does he, how do the kids relate to dad? And, and how, do the, how does dad and mom lead this house? What's happening in the home? If they're not concerned about the lives of their kids, if they're not concerned about raising them up to be godly, then they're not fit to lead. One thing I also want to say here too is just a big takeaway from that is that family is super important in the life of an elder. I mean, think about this. What other job can you think of that if there's family troubles, does this person become disqualified from and needs to step down? What other job can you think of where if things aren't right with the wife, that the man needs to say, I have to step out? Or if his children 
are, are off course and living under rebellion and it's not happening, does he need to say, I have to step aside? You see, so key, so important is the family relationship. It matters. His, his ability to lead hinges on this. And so one of the things I would say is pray for the elders and their families. Pray for the right relationship of their marriages because if look, Satan looks for a way to destroy the work of a pastor and an elder, he's going to do it quick by just trying to wreck the family. And so recognize how things are happening in their own lives. It directly affects to their success in the church, our success here. So pray for the families of your elders. Support them. Find ways to kind of lift them up and their children. So as we take a step away, here's what I want you to think about. Recognize that, once again, this is not just a list that's out there. And we're going to talk more about that list next Sunday, but it's something for all of us to look at our own lives and say, what do we see happening? But, but first and foremost, recognize for our church, we should desire godly, stable leadership. We should, be, we should recognize the need for that. And then also, we should look and see that not only is that for the elders, but we should look, it's for all of us too. We need a strong family life. The elders are to model this, but it's modeled so that we would catch it as a body and begin to live like this. So some questions I want to ask you as we finish up. How's your marriage? Not just you who might want to be an elder one day, but everybody in this congregation, men and women, how's your marriage right now if you're married? Do you pattern your marriage around what God's word has said, or are you just kind of winging it? Because we've done marriage class, I'm looking for, we're going to try to launch one either later this fall or early in the spring. We get in the room, we ask, how do we pattern our marriage? And most of us just pattern it because we saw what another Christian did and we thought, well, that works. And we've not really looked and said, what does God's word said of how we should work this out? How are you pattering your marriage? Is it strong, right? Is your marriage strong? Here's a question. Do you have wandering eyes? Do you struggle with fidelity? Do you struggle with things like pornography? Are you too close with others of the opposite sex that might actually bring questions or temptations to you? Uh, think about those things. Are you guarding your marriage right now? Is it a primary concern for you? Because it is for what we should look for. It's the first and foremost thing. But it's also for all of us to ask, what does my marriage look like? Here's another one. How about your family? How about your kids? Are you discipling them? Are you expecting Sunday only to kind of do the trick? What, what would people say if they saw how you parented? Now, this is a big one for me, right? Because often I've got, a, I've got what, I, what I'd like to do, but what should I be doing, right? What would people look if they saw what my parent style was or how we parent? Would they see people dedicated to raising kids in the Lord or somebody who's just somewhat interested in the faith? We saw this all the time in youth ministry. Parents were only somewhat interested in the faith and soccer and trips and everything took way more precedent over them attending. And then it was shocking to the parents when their kids stopped attending once they became adults. It wasn't shocking to us because we saw that they were only somewhat interested. There was never really an emphasis upon the body, about church, about the Bible, discipling. Here's a question. Do you pray for the salvation of your family? Are you modeling faith to them? Well, maybe you're in this room and say, well, I don't have any kids. Or maybe you're in this room and you say, well, I've, all my kids are grown up now. So let me ask you this. For you people, if you've got grandkids, your grandkids are now your mission. Or maybe your great-grandkids are. If you don't have kids, you know what your mission field should be is helping raise other kids in the church and the faith as well. 
It's not just that they only, the parents do it themselves, but they are to come alongside with the help of the church. Maybe for some of you today, it's time for you to say, you know what? My kids are out of the house. It's time that I step up and I want to be part of helping raise children in the Lord. I want to see more stories like what we heard this morning of just coming to a kid's event. And it was people that God placed there. They probably have no clue how that affected somebody and changed their life and their history. But maybe today is the day you say, I step up and I want to at least try to raise kids in the Lord as best as I can. What better way to fulfill this by joining a team and helping discipling children and youth? But ultimately, we should be praying and ask that God would give us strong marriages Believing children, believing grandchildren, that's what we should all want, regardless of whether or not we're shooting to have some sort of leadership role. Maybe in here you could say, well, I haven't been the best parent. I've been a terrible spouse. Maybe you failed in your marriage. The truth is, though, while we're not to just remain and just say, well, that's just how it's going to be, and we're told that we should try to get better, we should try to grow in that, we must never lose sight of the fact that, that though we have fallen ourselves and we have rebelled time and time again, we have been redeemed as a people of God by Jesus. Look what Isaiah 53 says this, Yet he himself bore our sicknesses and he carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. He was pierced because of our rebellion. Maybe you've been somebody, you can say, I've been that rebellious kid and I've been that rebellious adult. But it says the scriptures, Jesus was punished for your rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep and we've all turned to our own way and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. Now, that was written by Isaiah 700 years before Jesus. And then we get this in Galatians 1. Grace to you and peace from God the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present and evil age. According to the will of God and Father, to him be glory forever and ever. Amen. When we think about the gospel, recognize you might say here today, I've, I've not done any of this. And you might want to give up and you might want to say, is it too late for me? It's never too late for you. But what you should do first and foremost is when you start to, to realize that, turn that back to him. When you get down and you recognize that maybe you have been a failure up to this point, do you recognize that Jesus came for you even as you were a failure? Turn that back as praise to him. Because all this is said is that Jesus never rebelled. Jesus was faithful all the way through came and lived that perfect life, died on the cross, was buried, and three days later, God raised him from the tomb to show that he would take our rebellion, throw it away, and give us the perfect record of Jesus to stand in. So Christian, maybe you have been a failure up to this point. God doesn't want you to remain that way, but recognize when you walk out of here, turn that over to him, and then walk out of here saying that you don't stand in failure. You stand in the perfect record of Jesus. Maybe today you're not a Christian. Recognize right now you still stand in your failure. And you don't just walk outside the room because you've been in the church and you no longer have a record of failure. You must reach out to Jesus. You must call out to him and ask him to save you. And he will because he took your sins as well. Before you ever knew him, he knew you. God has always been faithful to us, though we have never been faithful to him. Do you want that record of Jesus? I pray that you do. Let me pray for you now. Lord God, I thank you for the gospel. I thank you that today here we are and we look at this and we recognize, God, the stakes are high. What you want, what you want from your people is solid marriages. 
You want solid families. Lord, many of us, maybe we can look and say we've not done it well up to this point. Maybe we can look and see that maybe some of the chaos in our life is because we've never stepped up to really disciple. We never took it seriously to love our spouse and to, to, to create a marriage that would honor you. Lord, I pray that we would stop all of that today, that today would be a starting point, a new starting point, that we would give that up to you and recognize though we have maybe been failing up to this point, we stand no longer in our failure. We stand in the record, the victorious record of Jesus. God, help us to live in light of that though. Help us not to take that for granted. Lord, if there's anybody in here today, I pray that they would recognize what it means to stand in the record of Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would forgive them all of their wrongs, that they would come to you and that they would see it and understand it, that they no longer will live unto themselves, but wholly to you because they have been changed and belong to you now. God, I pray that if they're looking and they're reaching out to you today, you would save them. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. <laughs>